Hello, everybody. This is another episode of The Books We Read, in which Regan Schrock and myself talk about the books that matter to us and that we have been reading. A lot of our episodes have been recorded together, as in we're in the same proximity, in the same space in one of each other's houses. But today I am in Pennsylvania and Regan is in Tennessee. And we're recording through a video call. Anyways, here we are. And we will each talk about a book that we have been reading. Regan, what have you been reading? Well, this this is, a I think, a little different from what we typically do. I'm going to be taking a look at N.T. Wright's translation of the New Testament. Um, so it is called the Kingdom New Testament. Um, N.T. Wright is a... Um, I guess you could say early church, New Testament, Greek, whatever, scholar that lives in the UK. Um, I think near London now. He moved recently. I'm not sure exactly. Um, and his work is quite intriguing. He brings, um, well, let me back up a little bit. I just recently started reading his books, actually, and uh, heard about his translation, picked it up as well. I found his books to be very refreshing in a way. Like, I don't agree with him on a number of points. But he brings a unique perspective, and, and he's, he is quite intelligent, has a very solid academic record, has written a lot of um, well-respected scholarship, especially on the Apostle Paul and a number of other things in the Greek New Testament, of course. So over time, you know, after, I don't know, 30, 40 years or whatever it's been of him working with the Greek New Testament, um, he thought, well, maybe I should just take all the notes I've made because he pretty much has worked with all the major passages of the New Testament and turn it into a translation. Um, so that is what he did. I'm trying to remember. I'm going to have to just look real quick here when this was released. Um, 2011. Um, so I guess this isn't like, not a, we're not really reviewing the book as much because I'm sure most of our listeners have read the New Testament, um, but more the approach and um, why I, personally really actually like it uh, quite a lot. Um, I'm going to just read a few snippets from the preface, and this is what he says, the very first opening lines. The first thing that happened in the life of the church was translation. On the day of Pentecost, God's powerful wind swept through Jesus' followers, filling them like the sails of a great ocean-going sailing ship, so that they could take God's good news to the ends of the earth. And they found them spe- themselves speaking other languages, so that everyone in the crowd could understand. And that's his opening point of really why translation and understanding God's words really, really matter this is a foundation cornerstone of how the church even started. Um, and, and then he makes the point uh, again, quoting again, uh, not for nothing does John call Jesus the word of God. There is no point speaking a word that no one can understand. And then he goes into a few other things like, you know, is it a translation versus a paraphrase? It is a translation, he says. Now, do keep in mind, it's one man, so it's not a full committee translation, so it doesn't have quite the variety of perspective or the robustness that maybe a a more familiar translation would have, but still. Um, And really, why exactly? And he he makes a great point. And actually, Jaron, you might have some thoughts on this, because this could apply to a lot of things. He says this, Inherited spiritual capital may help you get started, but you need to do fresh work for yourself. 
to think things through, to struggle and pray and ponder and try things out. Uh, And a new translation, as carefully faithful as it ought to be, but also as open to new possibilities as it needs to be, is a key tool for that larger task. Yeah, I find that really interesting because um, what can happen is people can, his concern is people getting complacent with this is just where the teaching is, and instead of actually working through this stuff themselves, um, we get complacent, and it's just kind of the way it is, and we don't have to do that that work ourselves, and we get um, intellectually and spiritually lazy, um, which is something my friend Vince Byler actually um, that we that I that I actually interviewed on another podcast talks about how it it can be very easy for us to just kind of ah oh, you know sit back and like hey all these other people have done all the scholarship I can just get lazy intellectually um, um, you know we we got this basically I think that's a really good point um, that can happen so all that looping back around. His argument, therefore, is we need to always be looking at Scripture with fresh eyes to help us see things that maybe we wouldn't have noticed before or help us um, engage with the text in new ways. Um, And that's the aim with this. Um, For example, one of the things he does is try to remove some of the formal language that we're used to seeing. I'll just quote it here. Um, He said, It seemed to me more important to convey that sense of excitement that... than to imitate the more formal, somewhat stately English prose that we're used to with other translations. Um, Even despite, you know, uh, of course those other translations are just fine, but he wants to convey more of um, almost day-to-day normal normal life instead of big, elaborate, formal prose. And by doing so, hopefully that'll help us see the text in in a new way. So, I don't know, it's interesting, um, intriguing. I don't know if I would sit down and use this for like deep Bible study, probably not. Um, I don't know if it's that good, but for just sitting down and reading, it is excellent, actually, in my opinion. Now, I'm not a New Testament scholar or a Greek scholar, so maybe I should be careful with that. But as far as just sitting down and reading through a book of the New Testament, this has been the best reading experience of the New Testament that I've ever had. Um, just for, I'm able to see things in and in, in engage with the text in new ways um, that are I honestly did not think I ever would uh, with an English translation. Um, oh, the other thing, Jaren, you need to tell me what you think of this, but they removed, um, not removed, but they made the verse markings um, really small so that you read it in paragraph form and not rely so much on the verse and chapter markings, which I think is, is really, really good. Um, and the type set is not in columns like we normally have. It's like regular paper, like reading a normal book. Um, there's and, and the font size is nice and large, easy to read, not the fine print that we're used to seeing in Bibles. Um, and then the best part is the book of Acts is loaded with maps of when it talks. There, there's a lot of geography in the book of Acts. This person goes to here, to here, to here, and he it will include a map that says, oh yeah, here's the route. Here's where those cities are. And I found that immensely helpful. Um, I wish more Bibles would do that, actually. Um, and, and put it right in there with the text. Like there's, I don't know, a dozen maps or so in the book of Acts alone where it um, outlines those different journeys. But anyway, I feel like I've rambled on enough about this. I would recommend people get it. Just be aware it is one man's translation. I, I would not use it for in-depth Bible study, but I found it to be uh, quite enjoyable um, as, a, as a, a fresh way to read the New Testament. So, Well, that is, that is definitely fascinating. 
I had no idea that he did that. N.T. Wright has written many, many books, many of which I would highly recommend and I think are valuable, but I didn't know that he had made his own translation of the New Testament. But I'm still a little bit perplexed by his case for making a new translation. Like when he was talking about how we can become so familiar with it or and or let other people do all the scholarship for ourselves that we don't actually engage with it ourselves. And that can be detrimental and combated by what he did, making his own translation and doing a lot of the study of language and um, I guess exegesis as well for himself. So I get that, but I don't think it follows that therefore we need to trust his translation or his scholarship rather than something done by committees such as the NRSV or NIV or any of the other familiar ones. The question is, what does he think he's offering us, except that it's not the same as something else? We're not the same as the translation that we're probably most familiar with. That's a really great point. Like, I found the way he'll render certain things um, it, it is just intriguingly different in a good way. Um, like, for example, instead of Lord Jesus, he tends to say King Jesus, or instead of Messiah, King, um, which is a is another adequate translation. Um, because we were the sense of how we think of Lord Jesus, you know, in his, you know, in this, he makes the argument for it's not close enough because the wording has changed. Like the way we think about that word isn't, isn't quite adequate. So he's like, well, Hey, what if we would put in King Jesus, which is also a a decent translation? Um, How would that make us think differently about who Jesus actually is? And I've been like, Oh, that's actually interesting because it does make me look at it slightly different. Jesus as an actual king um, with a capital K. You know, li- little things like that. There, There's a ton of stuff like that. But also how it has almost, like the letters especially, have a uh, more of an informal style um, because they were, again, this is what he says, I'm not a Greek scholar, but they were written in more common, everyday, informal letter style. And he wanted to bring that through in, into the English most translations don't do that from what I've picked up on. They, they still feel kind of formal. Now, some of them would, but I don't know. There's just something about how it reads. I, I, yeah, I don't know. You should pick up a copy and give it a try and let me know what you think because it is true. There's a lot of English translations out there. Why, why another? I don't know. I find, it, uh, I find it a very good read, but yeah. And maybe, maybe this is the crucial distinction in that many of the words that we get familiar with and think of only as religious words, actually wouldn't have to be just religious words. And you you brought out the thing of, like, King Jesus instead of Christ Jesus. I think maybe maybe we often forget what Christ means, the anointed, which would imply a king. I'm curious, does he use the word uh, church when he translates um, ecclesia, or does he go with something like assembly or gathering or does he stick with the religious uh, churchy word? I know. I think he goes with assembly. Uh, but no, he also uses the word church in here too. Um, I would have to look at that. Like, like just the way he especially renders conversation. 
it actually feels like conversational instead of like this high up, you know, lofty, far removed. And it helps you be like, oh, wow, like real humans had these conversations, you know, and here's what it might have sounded like um, instead of, yeah, the, the typical um, formal prose that, that we're used to hearing. Um, but back to your church com- uh, thing, I think he uses the um, church assembly, I think are both used, but another one he uses a lot is um, the way, capital W, like the way of Jesus, the way that the church was walking, here's this path that you're supposed to walk on. He uses that some throughout. I'm not sure what another translation would, I'd have to compare on that one. I am not entirely sure. I think the important thing here is, you know, there could be all the arguments about is it super accurate or not? And from what I've heard, it's, it's you know, reasonably accurate enough that I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, but the point more is finding ways to engage with the biblical text in new ways, in, in a fresh sense. Like, remember how it was when you read a certain book of the Bible for the first time. You're like, oh, wow, that's really neat. Or, wow, I see that. And then once you've read it a number of times in the same translation in the same way, um, you don't engage with it this at, in the same way. Like you, you don't see it quite as fresh. So then what I've found, oh, okay, let me switch translations and reread that same book. Oh, that's interesting. Here's a perspective or I never thought of that just because maybe they used a little different wording or they render it slightly different. That's what this has done for me. It's helped me um, see, especially, you know, the conversational style that he translates um, the sayings of Jesus and the way he interacts with people. Like, oh, wow, these were real conversations that happened with people um, instead of, you know, uh, thinking of them as something lofty, I guess you could say. I don't know if that even makes sense. But... Oh, that, that totally makes sense. Anyways. Anyways, so yes, I recommend people give it a shot. And if you don't like it, hey, there's lots of other translations out there too. You know, do your research and things. But yeah, found it interesting. So... All right, what you got for us this time, Jared? I have a book called To Change the World, and the subtitle is The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World, and it is by James Davidson Hunter. the thing. In the last episode, we talked about Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. So in the case of that book and this one, I read both of them several years ago. And so a lot of the specifics I can't talk about, but I still want to talk about them because they're important to me, or at least they were important to me and had an impact on me, played a role in the way that I think about things and were kind of um, formative. You mentioned... Vince Byler, I think early in this episode, and actually that same guy was uh, an instructor at a Bible school that I went to about six years ago, and he recommended this book to me. So I read it at that point. I was a teenager at the time, and I don't think that prior to that I had read academic literature. So a lot that was in this book was way, way over my head. But his message, what he said kind of shook the way I thought about things. Now, who was the author again? And, and what's his, his credentials? To Change the World was written by James Davison Hunter, published in 2010 
by Oxford University Press. Oh, and that's whoa. that's actually important, and that matters to him that he published with Oxford University Press. And of, of course, it would matter to anybody to get published by that prestigious institution. But actually, that's part of his rhetorical strategy. Basically, what he's saying in the book is that if we hope to change culture, we should not ignore the institutions at the center of culture. If we focus on the periphery, that is insufficient. He makes the case that cultures change from the top down, and rarely, if ever, from the bottom up. And if I understand him correctly, and I think I do, he's challenging the idea that the hearts and minds of average people are the most significant thing in bringing change to culture. So he doesn't really have a democratic, egalitarian emphasis in his understanding of cultural change. He's saying that the elites matter a lot more than the lowly, the peripheral, or the average person. So is it because he... Because that, that's strategically the best move, or like it's the most efficient, I assume? Yeah, strategically and the best, and he would also say it's the way that works. Wow. Okay, I'm just, I just pulled it up on Goodreads because this looks so fascinating. Whoa. So next time you're down, Jaren, you should bring this book, and I should borrow it from you. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have somebody else read it. Um, I've never met anybody besides I mean, Vince who has, so... Yeah, like here's the thing for for those listening. So, and Vince, you, maybe you should hear this episode. But you you were a major influence on both of us. Are a major influence. So Vince was a teacher at a Bible school that Jaron and I both went to, um, and has since moved on to the University of Cambridge of all places, um, studying um, Hebrew and a bunch of other. Yeah, it's legit stuff. Um, and anyway. His thing basically, if Vince recommends it, we read it. Is is the idea? So <laughs> I don't think we should come to that. <laughs> it, sometimes it gets pretty technical. Some of this, some yeah. of this stuff, but this does He's look competent. quite good. Anyway, I don't bunny trail. I should let's get back on top so, here. <laughs> in this in this book, like making a contrast between changing culture from the top down or from the bottom up, he um, presents us with a contrast. James Davison Hunter is a Christian, and he hopes to make a difference in the world. And so he uses himself as a case study for how he's going to do that. And that comes, comes through who he chooses to publish his book. Publishing can be really difficult. As I understand it, often authors are rejected. So it's not like he just could publish with anybody. But supposing he had the option to publish with either Zondervan or Oxford University Press, he asked, what's going to make the bigger difference? And he says Oxford University Press because Oxford University Press matters more and has greater weight than Zondervan. If he would publish an accessible book through Zondervan, which is reaching a popular Christian audience, he probably could have sold many, many copies of his book. If he publishes with Oxford University Press, he is going to sell comparatively fewer copies and reach mostly academics, scholars, people who care about sociology. So, even though he could reach more people with Zondervan and reach the people at the bottom of like social and intellectual and institutional stratification, he still chooses to publish with Oxford. And he thinks that's going to have a bigger difference in culture, even though most immediately he's not going to reach most people in culture. Wow, I, man, I like this guy. I really like this. Oh, he really gets on my nerves. Oh yeah, yeah. Damn, but what an interesting strategy! Like, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read 
a couple paragraphs here. Um, it's just a little bit long, but I think it very well illustrates what he's saying. He says, and this is on page 44 for those who actually happen to have this book and want to follow along. Ideas do have consequences in history, yet not because those ideas are inherently truthful or obviously correct, but rather because of the way they are embedded in very powerful institutions, networks, interests, and symbols. These factors, overlapping networks of leaders and overlapping resources, all operating near or at the center of institutions and in common purpose, are some of the practical dynamics within which world-changing occurs. These are the conditions under which ideas finally have consequences. So, basically, ideas don't have consequences unless they're distributed through institutions and structures. So then he, then he contrasts this wow. yeah. with hmm. the way we often think about it. Finally, against Christian pietism, which biases us to see the individual's heart and mind as the primary source and repository of culture, we now see that hearts and minds are only tangentially related to the movements of culture, that culture is much more complicated and has a life independent of individual mind, feeling, and will. Indeed, that is not so much individual hearts and minds that move cultures, but cultures that ultimately shape the hearts and minds and thus direct the lives of individuals. The movement between the individual and culture, in other words, goes in both directions and perhaps moves even more strongly in the latter direction. Around the same time that I was reading this, I would read books by Ray Comfort. I would watch his YouTube videos, watch the media he put out. Oh, wow. Whoa. For those who don't know who Ray Comfort is, he's an evangelist. He wants to, he wants to influence culture, and he does a lot of grassroots work. Like his, his MO is to preach on the streets, to give away tracts. He just, the man distributes tremendous amount of tracts. And in no way do I doubt the sincerity or the commitment of him to want to reach culture with the gospel and to make positive change. Um, I remember one video I watched by him called, I think it's called 180. Mm. In this video, he's making a case against abortion and trying to eradicate abortion from, um, from culture or being allowed. I don't know what all basically an anti-abortion strategy. And for that video, he would go around and talk with go around and talk with individuals. He wanted to make a cultural change, but he was going from the bottom up. And that is precisely the opposite of what Hunter is saying ought to be done to change culture. It's it's a striking contrast. Christians have wow. radically different yeah. ideas about this. Kind of what I thought of as the normal Christian way of changing culture is to do grassroots from the bottom up, like the idea that culture won't change until there's a critical mass of people who have their hearts and minds changed. Hunter is saying that's either naive or just doesn't work that way. I mean, like, does he have case studies on, on this, like examples from history? Because, wow, that's, that is so funny. The contrast between Hunter and Ray Comfort are, seems to be quite vast. No, it's it's very vast. Like I said, I read this six years ago. Um, it made an impression on me then, so I can't talk with you about specific examples. Although he has this beautiful, beautiful chart on. Okay, it's a boring chart, but it communicates well. It's a chart on page ninety. It's called the cultural matrix, and he divides it into three columns: the true, the good, and the beautiful. Then in the rows, he has. Like the grassroots, what he would say are not the most significant ways um, to change culture, contrasted with 
what he would say is going to do more to change culture from the top from the top down. Wow. He he contrasts huh. Christian schools with elite New York City and first tier book university publishers. Shout out to Oxford University Press, his his publisher. <laughs> he would contrast um, mass market book publishing with elite opinion magazines and journals. Maybe maybe our podcast versus New York Times The Daily would be an example. We're definitely going for the grassroots here with our podcast. He would say we're not yeah. going to change the world yeah. with this. Hope that's not. Oh man, Jaron, you crushed my dreams. The six people listening are going to be devastated. Ah, that no, that that actually resonates. That makes sense. I wow, wow, this is interesting. So, so yeah. these are some of the examples he he talks about. Again, in talking about the beautiful, the aesthetics, how are we going to make a greater impact? He contrasts popular music with classical and orchestral music, and mass market movies with um, theater and dance so these are these are some of the this is some of the practical practical ways he thinks about how are we going to make a difference who are we going to choose to distribute ideas what what's our media what's our platform wow wow yeah that's that is so interesting so here's the question then that i can hear people asking does that mean we can't change culture unless we have a phd and publish books with oxford Maybe that's what he's saying. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, because, man, we're toast. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that's not what he's saying. I just had to ask. But I think what he's advocating here is, like, maybe our ways of impacting culture need to go a lot deeper and be a lot more robust than they currently are. Because I, I, I've been a little disillusioned with that. I think David Berceau would be comfortable with me talking about this, but he had mentioned that in a conversation about how the Anabaptists aren't, aren't as strict. I guess you could stay, say strategic or like thinking through what is the way we can impact the culture around us, the communities we live in. Like we're so big on service. Maybe, you know, maybe we should do, do a little more like actually thinking through and having systematic plans that, you know, and measure like what is effective and things. Um, so anyway, this is something I've already been thinking about, and now this hunter guy seems to be. But here's here's the thing: we don't want to become pragmatist. I hope. So what he's talking about is what he thinks works. As a sociologist, he makes a case that working through the institutions, what's central rather than what's peripheral, is going to have the most impact on culture. However, we value individuals, and we must also be committed to individuals. Maybe we're not the most strategic, but we may be operating well within the framework that our that our values insist upon. And so, yeah, what what works best isn't always a thing that should be done. I don't want to become hard on people who try to operate more through the grassroots, from person to person, rather than through the elite institutions. However, I think we should recognize what the probable outcome of what we're doing is, understand the limits of what we're doing. And perhaps we should be completely comfortable with our limits because because we're operating within our commitments and values. Yeah, that's, man, that is interesting. It's like you, you have to have both though, right? Like you got to have the grassroots where you're in, influencing people day to day, you know, your neighbors, that kind of thing. But then we also see the value in having 
Christian college professors or, or yeah, whatever. I don't really have anywhere else to go with that. Um, so I guess we'll end the conversation with that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, before we go, though, Regan, what was your book again? Yeah, so it's N.T. Wright's translation of the New Testament. It's called The Kingdom New Testament. All right. And the book that I spoke about was To Change the World by James Davidson Hunter. And as always, you can follow us on Goodreads. Most all of the books that we read get listed there. We would love to interact with you on that platform, also on Twitter. Follow us there as well. And thanks for listening. We'll be back later.